Grab it whenever you're ready. Okay, great. Thank you very much. Good evening, everybody. So nice to see so many familiar faces. Um, a lot of people were asking me like how I came up with these particular topics, these three. Right? I originally um, more here. So I thought I would do since I I knew I had these three opportunities. I thought I'd do the first one more hashkafa than halacha, the second one sort of 50-50, and the third one really more halacha than hashkafa. So tonight is hashkafa. And tonight is a very, very personal issue by me. It represents, this is a kind of uh, a, a public tshuva I'm doing on this topic, because I, uh, as I'll show you and, and discuss, I, uh, I really learned a very, very significant lesson from this topic that changed my attitude about something almost uh, completely, 180 degrees. The issue was this. Um, it started with the, actually the, the COVID pandemic, where COVID uh, became sort of a hashkafic issue, the way people would treat uh, COVID, in terms of being vaccinated, wearing masks. It became this whole kind of hashkafic, especially in Eretz Yisrael, it was very, very marked as a hashkafic issue. And... Uh, Rabbanim were coming out and sort of dictating policy. So for a lot of people that was not uh, <coughs> what they were used to or not the way to have things take place. It should be the medical community to decide those type of things and not uh, the Rabbanim. And yet, even in the YU community, I know Rabbi Schechter and uh, Rafule came out with statements and with uh, sort of pushing certain uh, approaches to this. And there was a, a, a lot of people came over and told me them really that wanted to know the legitimacy of this. Why are Rabbanim dictating medical policies and, and that type of thing? Is there a Das Torah that really has application in that type of area? So I told them, you know, they're really opening up a can of worms. Das Torah is a very controversial topic that's been around controversially since the 60s, right? As soon as there was the age of autonomy the age where people started thinking for themselves, right, those wild 60s. I was just a baby, so I don't really remember it. Um, and um, there, there's tremendous polemics that went on in the Jewish literature, in the Jewish uh, publications, from the right and the left over this issue of Das Torah. What is this Das Torah all about? So, truthfully, Das Torah comes in two sort of Frameworks. One framework is the communal Das Torah, which was that issue. So I ended up speaking about that issue on the communal level, which was um, one uh, discussion. And um, I, my agenda was to show that the two sides are really not as far apart as they like to present themselves. A lot of straw men being created by both sides. And at the end of the day, you know, we should settle on that and, and relax. But there's another structure, there's another component of Das Torah that really, really uh, I feel I've been educated and matured about. And that's the personal level of Das Torah. And what I mean by this, I'll tell you, it actually started with a couple, a couple of uh, former Talmud of mine from years ago, married, had a baby, and they needed to make a very serious medical decision about this baby. And it was a time-sensitive decision that needed to be made where it was getting dangerous. And they had gotten two medical opinions. 
and um, they were associated each other. The two medical opinions were different, and they needed to make some type of decision within about a week or so. The wife insisted, we, got, we have to go to a gadol. We have to go to a gadol, let them decide. The husband felt very different. And the husband felt like, uh, that's not the way to go, let's go to a doctor for a third opinion. And he came armed with, you don't have this in the handout, but uh, there was a, a major article written in tradition, it was around 2015, 2016, by a major Shiva in uh, Eretz Yisrael, where he took a very hard line on this idea and was, you know, basically opposed to the input of Gedolim into people's personal, not only medical decisions, business decisions, all the things, and it's much more prevalent in Eretz Yisrael, that people very commonly will seek out the advice of a Gadol, of a Rebbe, for these type of issues. And he wrote a whole sort of very strong worded article, essay, opposed to it. So this guy, the husband of this couple, comes comes forward with his wife. They come to see me, and he's all armed with this thing. I'll just read what the, uh, the quote that he was armed with. Ample sources support the idea that great rabbis do not speak with special authority about issues of science, medicine, business, and so forth, while some traditional sources suggest the opposite. I believe, this is the Rosh Hashiva talking, that authentic encounters with great rabbis of our day bolster the position that limits their knowledge to Torah questions. They're great men who excel in Torah, but Torah knowledge does not grant them immediate erudition in all branches of human endeavor. Um, as a result, it would be odd to turn to rabbinic authorities for guidance about investment banking maneuvers or treatments for a particular illness. So, what? Um, it's public, it's it, tradition. A, a, a well-known Rosh Hashiva in Eretz <laughs> <laughs> could. I'll, we'll talk about it after. I'll, 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 yeah, you'll find it. So, um, anyway, I have to admit that based on previous conversations that this young husband, father, had with me, he expected me to be right in line with that way of thinking. Um, and quote, he, I was going to help him straighten out his wife. So little did he know that I've uh, matured, as I said, about this issue, and have a, a very different take. And I think the take, the idea of this Rosh Hashiva, uh, and this is the reason I'm not saying his name, because I, I feel it's flawed, what he's saying. Um, and uh, I surprised myself with the degree that I felt that it was flawed. How did I come to this realization that he's wrong? Because the truth is, my natural inclination is to think that he's right. And I'll tell you, it all began with the following story. This is a true story that happened to me. It was shortly after I uh, finished Smicha in Wainu. I was um, already a practicing physician, and there was a hospital in New Jersey that had a very serious dilemma. And I, I don't know how they got to me or why me. I was basically fresh out of Smicha. I, I didn't really have any like teaching position, rabbinic position, but I guess because I was a doctor, they called me in to help them extricate from the following very difficult situation. There was a baby, unfortunately, Lo Aleinu, born with a condition called trisomy 18. Any doctors here might know what that is. It's a horrible, horrible diagnosis. It's universally fatal within a year, right? Like 99% and 
severe mental handicap. It's a horrible diagnosis. The general approach of doctors, when this happens, is don't touch. Don't do anything, you know, you know sort of totally passive and uh, human, humanistic care for, the, for this baby. Comfort care. Comfort care is the general expression. Right, so you're familiar with that. Yes. Oh, so you're going to really appreciate this story, by the way. Does that mean the baby will die? If nothing's done, the baby will not survive beyond a year, 99%. There are, there are these exceptional cases. but And if they do, they're severely handicapped. It's a, it's a very, very... You know, most physicians, if not, you know, almost all physicians, recognize this, and no one's suggesting anything heroic. The problem with this particular case was this baby also had a, a cardiac defect that somehow, I don't know how it happened, but ended up intubated on a respirator in this hospital. And uh, the people in the hospital had already decided, meaning the administration, the physicians, had decided we need to remove this baby from the ventilator and let nature take its course. That was their decision. The family were a family of Chabad Hasidim, and no way were they going to allow that to happen. And the truth is, there aren't really any postkin in terms of end-of-life issues that would allow active removal of something that would lead imminently to uh, someone's demise. But in this particular case, everything was uh, a mess because the family's not budging and the hospital is adamant. So the hospital brought me in. The hospital brought me in. They said, look, you take care of this. So I told you, sure, I'll piece of cake. You know, I'm just going to like, what am I going to do? So... The only way to get this baby home would be to get the baby off the respirator. Get the baby off the respirator, the family's willing to take the baby home. The baby can't come off the respirator while this defect is not corrected. I went to three surgeons begging them to do this case. In a million years, they said. They, they just wouldn't go near it. We're not operating on somebody with trisomy 18. We're not going to do it. So it's become an impasse and uh, lots of pressure and threats and it's getting a little ugly and I say, uh, I can't believe, first I can't believe I got called in on this, but I, I came up with, I thought what was a, a brilliant plan. I said, maybe the surgeons won't do open heart surgery that involves bypass and all sorts of fancy things, but there is something called pulmonary artery band, don't worry about the medical details, but it's a means of a very less invasive procedure that could get the situation under control, get the baby off that ventilator, because that was the key, and the family will take the baby home. So the hospital loved the idea. I had to find a surgeon, so the first two surgeons still said no even to that, right? You're not surprised by that. The third surgeon, right, nice guy, said yes, I'll do it. I said, oh wow, this is getting really exciting. I'm really gonna do something positive in a case that I thought was like an impossibility. So I go to the family and I say, good news, we have a, a means of getting the baby home. What is it? We have to do this little procedure. I said, you ready? They said, no. I said, what's the problem? I said, I th everything's falling into place. What's your problem? We need, we need to talk to our Rebbe. All right. I said, okay, you need to talk to your Rebbe. Who's your Rebbe? The Rebbe. Right? So I said, oh, that makes sense. There's only one problem. He was already nifter. <laughs> so I, I said, how are we going to do that? Now, this was before I, now I've had experience with this. I know what they do. But then I had no idea, and I'm like looking at him, 
what? You're gonna, how are you going to do this? So what they do, and this is not unusual, now I've seen this many times, is they'll write a letter, and you go to the Kevin, you go to the all, and you put it there. So I said, okay, that part sounds easy enough, but how do you get the answer? <laughs> so he, said, he starts smiling, like, you know, oh, I'm going to show you. And um, we write the letter, you know, I composed it with him, exactly what's going on, is what we want to do, right? He writes it in Yiddish, um, although when you're using this methodology, I'm sure any language should work. But, so he brings it over, and then I'm just waiting with bated breath. He's smiling away. How are we going to get the answer? You're going to do it, doctor. I, I'm going to do it. What am I going to do? So he comes in. He says, all right, we're ready for the answer. He brings in, um, there are these uh, 22 volumes of letters that the Rebbe answered from people asking for advice and asking for issues. So he brings in one of these volumes, and he, you know, the Goral grow. You know, you open it up, and uh, boom, you got the answer. So he gives me the book. I open it up, right? And I'm saying, God, I can't wait to see what this is. You know, wow, this is like uh, either all my cynicism is going to be justified. So I open it up, and it's like in Yiddish. So I said, oh, do I trust him? You know, like, is he going to... I decided to trust him. He reads it. And the, he reads the last line. The last line says, and the heart surgery is a good idea. You should do it. So I'm saying, is that what he really said? You know, like, I was really doubting. How could that be? So he showed me the words. I know enough Yiddish to be able to say, wow, that's what it really said. And I'm saying, oh, my God, I can't believe this. This is amazing. I've been wrong all these years. Too much of a hyper-rational cynic. And then I find out the entire volume is the volume of cardiac surgery. <laughs> All right, so that, that was it for me. Back to my citizens. And I'm saying, oh, I see what this is all about, you know, what's going on. But I want to say, I'm purposely telling you this story, you know, because it's really a funny story, actually. But I learned a lesson on this. There was something that happened in the course of these events that is very significant, very much a cue by the Rebbe, Mina Kevin. Like, it's a cue this Rebbe, the Rebbe managed to pull off and has pulled off many times. And I'm going to come back to it to try to explain what I mean by that. We'll see in a few minutes. Anyway, there, this, this starting point for me to be cynical about the place for Gedolin in serious medical shilohs was uh, undergone what I call this maturation. And that's what I wanted to share in uh, the time we have. How did I come to do that? Like, what changed about me? Um, you know, I got a little older, but I, I, I still feel that I think rationally. And I think like a person who's a modern person. So why would I change my attitude about this? Where is the place for the gedolim? What, what, what's going on? So uh, now we can take a look at the, at the handout, page 5. And I'm going to be outside the Makaros. I'll, I'll tell you where they are, because this, this handout actually is from a different uh, presentation of this, really focused on that other issue of communal Das Torah. But we're going to use some of it for the personal Das Torah. There is, um, you know, when it comes to an issue like Das Torah and answering personal issues, there's, there's two ways that you have to approach a sugya like this. One is the classic sugya approach, Makoros, learn it. Learn what the what Chazal said. Learn what the Rishonim have to say. So we're going to do that. But on an issue like this, there's something else that's necessary. There's something else you need to add to it. And that is personal experience. And a lot of what I learned 
is because I was very, very fortunate to be Zoha to have meetings directly with many of Gedola Yisrael, the very, very significant Gedola Yisrael. And uh, those experiences, I have to say, contributed tremendously to my reanalyzing of this entire issue and my take on it. Um, what you see over here, it's interesting, is the Rambam wanted to sort of introduce this concept of it's the experience with the Gadol that is uh, most beneficial in understanding the utility of going to the Gadol, as well as some fringe benefits. There's the utility for the issue at hand, the main issue, the question, the advice that's needed. And then, if you're Zoha to meet with true Gadolim, you get fringe benefits, which I'm going to share with you as well. The, the concept is very clear in this Rambam. The Rambam is quoting that uh, very famous saying in Chazal that, you know, it's very important who you're hanging out with. Who you're hanging out with is going to influence you very much. <coughs> so the Rambam says in that, in that sense, so he says it's, Sarich Adam Lishaber Letzadikim, Leshev Eitzel Chachamim Tamid very, very obvious Pashat Halacha. What's very, very insightful about this Rambam, though, is when he, in Halacha Beis, starts to enumerate the settings for most gain from the Tamidei Chachamim, it's not the base Medrash. It's not, it's not even the base Knesses. It's, it's eat with them. It's spend time, do business with them. It's all mundane activities. The Rambam's going out of his way to show you something. He's telling you that, you know where you're going to really pick up the godless and you're going to pick up the most? It's when you're involved in the day-to-day life and the average mundane activities of a godless. That's where it's at. And, and this reminded me of, uh, of something of Chochmur uh, Goyim Tamin and Batora uh, Na. There's such a, a difference in many, many areas, many facets, and this is one of them. I had on the bottom of here is an article from a medical journal that I had uh, seen where they emphasized there's something called a role model and something called a mentor. And to them, a step up was going from role model to mentor. What's the difference between a role model and a mentor? A mentor is, is sort of planned. It's, it's uh, something that takes a lot of uh, effort by the mentor to do it right. And you have to give your time and, and make uh, uh, careful sort of interactions with the people. But the role modeling is more serendipitous. It's more like your role model by accident. They, they quote John Lennon over here. Very interesting. It's what happens when you are busy doing other things. That's role modeling. I th- and they say, you know, for doctors, they're giving advice how to be a good uh, academic doctor who's going to be teaching. They say, move it up to mentorship. Become a mentor, which means be somebody who's kavua in teaching and doing things like that. I think Chazal tell the Rambam for sure, and Chazal are saying the opposite. He's saying the greatest potency is in role modeling. Serendipitous, just natural uh, observations. Just when the person's not even looking to be influencing you. Seeing them, you know, in, the, in, the, in its most basic, fundamental advantage is the fact that it's so emistic, right? I'll, I'll just, as a minor example, I'll give you this. I, I had an experience that I think really illustrates this concept. When I was... Um, I was in college, so I hadn't yet gone to Israel. I didn't have a Shana Aleph. My parents weren't so into the idea of me going to Israel. <coughs> and, um, you know, I was contemplating going, not going, constantly bothering all my friends. I was in the, this was Siyad Dishmai. I was put in a dorm room 
with like these 10 guys all fresh back from Chana Bet, Chana Gimel, like all these really, Isaac Kira project for sure of that, of that room. So one night we were playing uh, basketball at like 1 a.m. It's the kind of thing you guys do, I don't do that anymore. But at 1 a.m., so I'm coming back with one of my friends who, uh, you know, I really looked up to him. He was like a guy who was in Chalavin for two years, whatever, and I'm walking back with him, and there's this little old lady who was in the street. In the middle, and that wasn't such a nice neighborhood where we went to school, and I'm wondering, as we pass her, wow, that's dangerous. What's this little old lady doing? You know, turns out she's probably Elio Anadi. I don't know, but we'll see in a second with this story. I, I thought, wow, I can't believe she's alone. I felt bad, but I just kept walking. My friend stopped, went over to her, can I take you home, and walked her home. Very simple, very natural. It hit me like a ton of bricks. Why didn't I do that? That's what I should have done. And I saw a difference between us. And of course, like, and I associated it with the fact that he went there to Israel. Halabai was so simple that that's the, how it worked. But I, I saw immediately in that serendipitous exchange the, a flaw in myself and a weakness and a strength in him. And it made a very, very big impact. So that, that's the idea. That's the idea. There's nothing like direct contact and direct interaction to get the most incredibly potent lessons. All right. So first, before we get into those, so I'm going to be sharing all, a bunch of experiences, a lot of stories. Right? Hashkafa lends itself to a lot of stories, which is good for a late night shir, I always say. So I, um, I'll start with some Makoras, though. So the Makoras here are on page uh, four, I think it is, in your hand. In terms of whether Talmidei Chachamim are good people to go to for advice, it's Beferush, a Brisa in Pirkei Abbas, right? The sixth parent of Pirkei Abbas is Brisa, right? It was just thrown in there so we could have between uh, Pesach and Shavuos, you know, one for every week. So it says like this, it says someone who learns Torah Lishma has all these wonderful things happen to them. But the one that we're most interested in, Unenin Mimenu Eitzah, right there. Right, he's going to be Raya, he's going to be close to Hashem, he's going to be a good person, he's going to be great, 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 and from him you'll get advice. Very, very straightforward. Right there in Pirkei Avos, that that's a place to go for advice. The question, of course, is, why? Why are they great for advice? Are they great for advice about Torah, and that's it? Or are they great for general advice? So comes a little of Soloveitchik in the, in the piece below, and he puts a perspective on this that I think is a great starting point for understanding the difference between the vast Torah leadership of Kal Yisrael in contrast to, let's say, the, the Pope and the papal uh, type of infallibility and papal type of uh, dictatorship to some degree. The Pope has absolute power. It's imposed on a Catholic. If you're a good Catholic, you're going to listen to the Pope because that's the way the system is set up. It's imposed on you. Israel, son of aging, and the same thing, certainly by the Ayatollahs, it's imposed by fear for your life. And what about Tamidei Chachamim? Why do we listen to them? What's our attraction to Tamidei Chachamim? So Israel, son of aging, very, very beautifully, this I'm going to read. The commanding authority of the Rebbe has been acknowledged by the Torah in all ages without reservation. Right? It's very important. This is coming from the Rav. This is not, you know, something that's just 
a uh, yeshivish, right-wing kind of idea, or Hasidish idea. This is good old Y.U., saying that the Rebbe has been acknowledged by the eternal ages without reservation. Spiritual authority is often more effective and its orders more readily obeyed than political office. The influence of the Baal Shem Tov, the Gaon of Vilna, both during their lifetime and posthumously, extended to and modeled the lives of millions. And then he says, why? So he, over there, he says, why is the authority of man over his fellow man sanctioned? Why is that a Torah idea that anyone should have this uh, upper hand on other people? That they're the repositories of advice. They're the ones who should make communal decisions. That was another thing he was talking about. The authority of a teacher in, in terms of Yadus is not imposed. There's no coercion. No political instrument is employed. A Torah teacher is freely accepted and joyfully embraced. His authority emerges from his personality. His learning and selflessness are acknowledged. Not fear, but affection and, respected and, and respect motivate one's submission. The students are not crimped and circumscribed. Their souls are not shriveled through fear and conformity. On the contrary, right? we all voluntarily go into this. So I said, oh, wow, that's a very, very beautiful general statement and general kind of observation by Rav Soloveitchik. What's the cause of it? Why does that? Why, why does that have, what attracts us? So here, this is on page six. <coughs> I'm going to start with a story from Rav Aaron He It's an amazing thing. He says, the first thing about Das Torah that attracts us to it, or is actually a prerequisite for it to have any meaning and significance, is what do you think? What's more important in Das Torah, the Das or the Torah? So I would have thought, the Torah is everything. What are you kidding? What's the Das? Says, says Rav Aaron, very, very interesting. He goes, he learned from Rav Hutner, first and foremost, it's the Das. What does that mean? So he told the following story. He said that when uh, Rav Hutner was uh, sitting Shiva, and uh, he came to see him, he was Menachem uh, Avel, and he was all by himself. It was a rare opportunity. And he sees that uh, he's very, very upset. Rav Hutner sitting there by himself, all upset. And uh, Rav Aaron is, you know, inquiring, what's the matter? What's, what's wrong? He said, you're not going to believe this, what just happened. So he said, what happened? Well, this well-known Rosh Hashiva, who's supposed to represent Das Torah, came in, <coughs> and he said the following thing to me. He had lost his wife. And he was obviously, appropriately, very upset. So the Rosh Hashiva says to him, listen, in an attempt to make him feel better, right? we'll grant that, what he chose to do is uh, very, I can't put it any better than the way Rav Hutton put it. He says to him, I know you lost your wife, and it's, it's, it's a tragedy, but you know, now she's in the Olam HaMS, it's much better there. So, Rav Hutner says, you know, I, I understand, I'm a believer in Das Torah, but you got to have Das. This guy has the Das, there's a quote, of a Nevela. That's what he said. The Das is the Das of a Nevela. So, Rav, comes comes Rav, Rav Aaron, he says, that taught me something very, very important. You want to talk about giving advice and, and promoting the concept of the last Torah and say that you're immersed in Torah, so it gives you this edge, but first you need to have Das. And Das, Rav, Rav Aaron, sort of summarized as the following three qualities. Understanding the world and the soul of a person who stands in front of him, 
This is like more, this is like a very very insightful type of statement. To understand somebody's soul is not so partial. What exactly is meant by that? Understand the reality of the situation at hand and have a true and honest accounting of one's own conscience. So I think to illustrate what Ravaran gets, he wrote, he wrote a whole essay on this. So I'm not going to obviously go through that, but I think I can illustrate it with one of my stories. So the first story was the following. I, uh, I had this family approach me. They had uh, to make a big medical decision. And the uh, decision here was one, and anyone who's in medicine knows this, there are times when you make the medical decision because it's very clear and, and simple. Based on the data, you could determine this is what you're supposed to do. But there are many cases where it just doesn't work out that way. And there are two options. And you need the involvement of the family. They have to like be part of this decision. This was one of those cases. right? There was choice A and choice B. And it needed the personal involvement of the family to decide which way to go. So they were insisting that I do it. They insisted, you choose. You're the doctor. So I'm trying to explain it. We're going back and forth. This is going on for a few days. And this family was uh, related to Rav Michal Yehuda Lefkowitz. Everyone familiar with him? He's one of the Gdole Yisrael from the previous generation. Really very, very famous. And uh, they told me, all right, you have to go see Rav Michal Yehuda, and then we'll make the decision. So I'm saying to myself, I know Michal Yehuda is, he was close to 100 years old at the time they were telling me to go see him. What's, what is he going to do in this, in this particular situation? So I, I remember it was on Sukkot, and it was very, very hot in Eretz Yisrael, and there was about 100 people lined up to see him. And uh, a little embarrassing for me, the start of the story, they, they whisked me up, because it was the family, it was his family, so they whisked me up. ahead of all these people. I'm like very embarrassed. You know, I'm cutting all these people standing in the sun, I just come out and just get you know pushed to the front of the line into the sukkah. The sukkah had an air conditioner, right? I was still sweating bullets in, inside the sukkah, and um, I remember at the time when it, you know I'm wondering what the crowd's thinking as I get whisked up there. So one of my kids was in this crowd, um, Patalo, for those who know him, and uh, so some guy came up to him and said, uh, "Who was that?" You know, as they're pulling me up. You know, I'm Reb Shach's grandson. This guy saying to, how come I don't get to go up there? Yeah, but Tal goes, yeah, that's my father. He's nobody. <laughs> Which he's 100% correct about. Nevertheless, I'm brought up there to sit there with him. And what happens? So Mithi showed me, too, this was like what I mean by the advantage of having the direct interaction. He sees me sweating. Now, I'm sweating because it's hot, and I'm sweating because... The whole thing is like a little surreal for me. It's one of my earliest experiences with meeting Gedolim like this. And the whole time, 45 minutes, I, I don't know what everyone else is staying online for, he's holding my hand and wiping my, my forehead. With a, he's just like treating me like a child, which I probably deserve, but consoling me and making me feel better. So that's number one. Like That was an amazing demonstration for me one of Gedolei Yisrael. I mean, he's like, one of the top, top Gedolim is, is uh, doing this with me. And I'm waiting, when are we getting to the issue at hand? I'd like really to take care of this. And he says, don't worry. I know you're really nervous about this, but you're going to make the decision. 
<laughs> I said, but it's, I, I told him everything I could say as a doctor, you know, and I'm pleading with him. He says, no, 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 you're going to make the decision. And then he pointed out something I missed completely. He says, and the reason you're going to make the decision is because they can't make this decision. Because what if something goes wrong? Then they made the decision. They want you to do it to spare them of that decision. And it hit me like a ton of bricks. That was incredibly, I missed it. Insightful. So as soon as, as soon as he said it to me, I said, that would be the greatest thing for me to do right now. Because actually, even though I didn't feel I had a, a, a scientific reason to choose one over the other, but to do this for them, and from that time, it's, it's occurred many other times. There are some times where it's 50-50 or this kind of life and death decision is impossible to make on a scientific basis, on any kind of data basis. The way I was brought up in medicine was to put it on the family. You don't do it. But what the, the Gadol was telling me that I completely missed was the biggest favor I could do for them. Right? No one can decide. Hashem's going to decide. Whatever's going to happen is going to happen in a 50-50 decision. The best thing I could do in a case like this is take the achrayas off of them so that if chas v'shalom it doesn't go well they're not damaged for forever in that they made that decision so that was that was something that it then occurred to me that was what was going on with the Babacher Rebbe and the family with the trisomy 18 that was exactly what they were going through they I don't know whether they really believed they were talking to the Rebbe or not talking to the Rebbe you know they kind of stacked the deck a little by using the volume of cardiothoracic surgery to Shiloh. But by putting it on the Rebbe, even posthumously, it was easing the situation. The, the Rebbe was bringing them comfort from the Kever. And that is something to really recognize as one component of what it offers if you have a sympathetic and empathetic Gadol who understands the soul of the person, as Ravaran was saying, who understands the, the totality of reality and what people are going through and is sensitive, so it's something that is very, very important to Kudu. Oh, you'll get to it. No, 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 I'm, I'm working my way up from the, the easy to the more subtle. <laughs> now, there's, there's, another, there's another obvious component. We talk about Das Torah. So there's something that uh, many, many gedolim or many, many rabbanim will emphasize about what we should recognize, why Das Torah is a, a genuine concept. It's a concept that we should take very seriously. And that is because if we really believe, as we all profess, that Torah is, you know, I remember, you know, Rabbi Luchtenstein just comes to mind, used to have these Q&As, in Gross every Wednesday night. And invariably, people put him on a desert island, right? It was always like they wanted to set up a, a question that involved putting an iron on a desert island. What I mean, I'll give you an example. Uh, they wanted to find out what, what's his favorite safer. So if you're on a desert island, what safer would you take? So Ramban Alatok. That, that's what he's famous for. Okay. And then they want to find out, how does he really feel about being Mechal Shabbos to save the life of a non-Bnei Bris, right? So we... We're allowed to do it for technical reasons, because of extreme Ava, Bikoch Nefesh. But they said, what if we put you on a desert island, and it was you alone, with a non-Bnei Bris, 
and it was Shabbos, and you had to be Mechal Shabbos to save his life, what would you do? Right? They, they'd get him on the spot that way. Another one was uh, relevant to us. It was like, you know, why learn Gemara? Right? That, that was one facet of this question. Right? They always used to love to ask him. And they said, why is it, why is it that Bas um, Torah has significance? Why is it that we should give, you know, credence to Torah, this type of shayla? So I'll, I'll never forget, he, he's, a very, he's one of the most gentle people, the Baron Lutensen. He starts pounding. It was like he couldn't believe. Don't you get it? When we say the Torah is our blueprint, the Torah is our guide in life, it means that there isn't a facet of life, there isn't a shiloh or a medical situation or a business situation that it won't impact upon. And for that reason alone, it's important to realize that there's utility in these type of situations in going to Gedol. So... That brings me to the next story, where I'm going to show you a demonstration of this, where you think, you know, you've exhausted all the possibilities, and what could the Gadol add? What's he going to add to the kind of situation? So this, this took place um, more recently. I had, there was a, a baby that was born, there's one person who could appreciate this, with Epstein's anomaly, a very, very bad, a bad defect, and a bad variant of Epstein's anomaly. And it's a bad heart defect. And they were told, you know, baby's not going to make it, probably die in utero. Baby was born. Then they were told that uh, he's not going to make it past first year. And, you, you know, if you do surgery, it's probably not going to work. And uh, slowly but surely, this baby became a toddler and seven years old, 10 years old, no surgery, nothing, and is doing okay. Child hit around 15 years old, and it was my, my patient. I say to the to the father, who's uh, also Rosh Shiva uh, here in America, and um, I say to him, I said, "Now we got we got to do something. We have to do we have to do surgery. We're going to have to operate. Otherwise, he's not going to make it a year. He's going to die within the year." Now the details on this case are very important, right? He's not going to make it a year if we don't do something. If we do something. 75% chance mortality, which means he'll die 75% chance with the surgery. You have to choose. We have to decide what we're going to do. Are we going to do the surgery or not? If he doesn't make it, he's going to die right away. Right? He doesn't get out of the O. So now we have a choice. Do nothing. He can make it a year. Do what you need to do. He could die right away. Or, if you fix it, chayolam, which means he can live indefinitely. So how do you decide such a thing? So, uh, this is actually a very simple case if you know these uh, sugyas, right? There's a very famous Gemara that is in the handout, which uh, is on page six. But I'm going to do everything outside so we can finish on time. Um, the father was a Rashiva. He knew the sugya called. The son was an Eloy. This 15-year-old boy was actually tremendous Tamachacham. They both knew the sugya. The father's conclusion from the sugya, we got to do it. We got to do the surgery. The son, I'll take my year. I'm not doing it. That's the uh, conclusion that they came to. 
they come to me and I'm like, oh no, they're going to say, you decide again, it's going to be like one of those? No. We want you to go to the following three gedolim and pose this question. Let them help it, help, help us out. Who do I get to go to? You know, like, there was some fringe benefits for me getting to speak to all these gedolim. Chaim Kanievsky, Chaim Kanievsky, I should speak to him. Dan Siegel, I don't know if you've heard of him. He's also a major, major Gadol. And I had a similar case. So I'm going to throw this into Rav Ozna, right? Rav Asher Weiss spoke about Rav Ozna and Shevet Alevi today. Rav Ozna. I'm to pose this question to all three. This is really very interesting because <coughs> the sugya, I'll just, you need a little background to the sugya. You have to understand the way this works in the, in the Gemara and the Rishonim and the Psalm. Seven. Thank you. So, but I'm going to say it outside because we're really running out of time. So, the Gemara of Odezar and Dafchav Zayin Amibes has the following case. It's talking about are you allowed to go to a rofe who's an akum? Are you allowed to go to a, uh, a an Ovid of Odezara doc? Now, you have to realize this is not talking about contemporary non-Jewish doctors. It's talking about an Akum who was suspected of wanting to kill us, that there was a high probability. You know, an Ovid of Odezara who's doing Shvichus Damim and Arayos and he's doing all sorts of things. And the Gemara says that if you have an illness where you might live and you might die, usher to go to them. Usher to go to them. Why? Because they're vada going to kill you. That's how the Gemara puts it. And you have a 50-50 chance, Sheval Tase, don't do a thing. What if it's Vada you're going to die? So the Gemara says, then you can go to them. So the Gemara says, wait a second. What about Chaisha? Right? What about the fact that they're going to kill me right away? Maybe I'll make it at least a few months or something like that. Rashi says a few days. Others say a few months, up to a year. Maybe I'll make it. So the Gemara says... We don't worry about Chayisha in this type of sign. And then the Gemara brings a Raya. And you watch the Raya for this? The Raya is, there's a, a story in Malachim Aleph, uh, actually Malachim Beis, in uh, Perak Zion, that talks about there was a siege, Aram was siege on, on Shomron. And there were these Mitzorayim that were sitting outside the city of Shomron. These Mitzorayim happen to be Gehazi. Anyone know, holding a Nach knows that Gehazi was the uh, Shamish for Elisha. And uh, he got punished because he ran after Naaman. It's a whole long story. I can't go into the whole thing now. Naaman was, a, was the general for Aram. And he had gotten Saras. He got leprosy. He came uh, to Elisha to be cured. Elisha cured him. And he, then he wanted to give him money, and Elisha, I'm not taking money. This was Ratzon Hashem, whatever. And then Gehazi, very, very uh, much out of line, ran after Naaman to get the money. His punishment was he got Tsaras, he and his children. So these four Mitzrayim, Gehazi, are sitting outside the, the city, and they say like this The city's under siege, we're going to starve. If we sit right here, we're definitely going to die in like whatever, a few months, a few weeks. Why don't we go into the enemy camp and take our chances? Maybe they'll kill us right away, and maybe they'll let us live, right? And that was the raya for Chazal to decide in this type of scenario 
to take a chance. <coughs> Nobody's telling me not to worry about the time. All right. <laughs> so, um, anyway, so the uh, the Rishonim and the Poskim make a long story short. Poskim like this Gemara. What's the Psak? The Psak is Davra Pashut that when you have one of these decisions, you, you you see the parallel to our case, right? You have to choose between potential prolonged life, potential saving that will give you a long life, versus uh, the possibility if it goes wrong, you'll die right away. But if you do nothing, you have a little more time that you can choose, or maybe should choose, to take a chance. Right? That's what the, the psak is. The psak is, Question is, there are a lot of like sort of loose ends that need to be filled in in this particular sugya to really use this practice. One of them is, how much risk are you allowed to take? Right. So this is a major machlokus between Moshe Feinstein and Moshe Feinstein says no more than rove. In other words, it's got to be less than rove chance that you're going to fail, rove that you're going to succeed in order to justify giving up Chayisha and taking your chances. And the Achiezer says, no. And how Moshe comes to this, I wish I could do with you. It's, uh, Moshe reads Gemara's like no, no other God. He just sees things in Gemara's that, that are incredibly deep. And here's one of them. He saw in this Gemara proof for that, but I can't go into it right now, where he comes out to this conclusion, you can't, like our case, my case, he would have passed in, that you can't go for that procedure. 75% is too much risk. It has to be you have at least a 51% chance of success. And the Achiezer says, no, don't you see the expression? What is the implication of that expression? The implication is, we don't care. We don't worry about it. And you could, even if there's a 90% chance of mortality, you could take your chances. That's what he says. So that was problem number one in the argument between the father and the son. The father was saying, we could take a chance. We're going to take a chance. We're going to go with the Achiez. And the son says, look, Ramosha says, Ramosha says you can't. So I'm not doing it. But there was a bigger problem. The bigger problem was, who makes this decision? How do we decide? So this was a machlokis as well between Shlomo Zalman and Ramosha. Shlomo Zalman, you see, all the heavy hitters are getting involved in the Shaila. Rishon Zalman says, if it's mutter, you're chayiv. You are obligated to take a chance. That's Rishon Zalman's psaq. And Rav Moshe says, no. And this is, and Rav Shechter says, like Rav Moshe Feinstein, for those interested in uh, Rav Shechter's take on this, he says, no, this is one of those places, even though in Yadus we don't have autonomy to do with our bodies as we please, we can't hurt ourselves, we can't take those type of chances, but we have autonomy individual autonomy to decide a decision like this. When it's between Chai Isha and Chai Olam and making that kind of choice, in this context, we have autonomy to make the decision. What's the proof? Says, says Ramosha. He says, who are we learning this halacha from? Our varyanim, Rishayim, Gehazin and sons. Since when do we learn Torah and halacha from bad people? What's the reason the Gemara gave the Raya from them? was to teach you that this is not anything other than a reasonable human decision. And that's what they're representing. It's Bedafka using them 
to bring out this point. The brilliant insight by, by Rav Moshe about this, and Rav Shechter always quotes it, and holds this way about most end-of-life decisions, actually. Rav Shechter approaches them with this yesod. It's autonomy in this area. When there's like choosing, you know, subtle choices between uh, immediate potential death versus prolonged life and making that type of subtle choice, that there is total autonomy for the person that's involved in the case. So, again, the son says, look, look what they're saying. Autonomy. I'm choosing not to go. The father said, but Rav Shlomo Zalman. Zalman says, you have to do it. So, this is the background. This, the kuach between the two of them. And they come to me and they say, go to this gedolim and tell them the whole story and get things taken care of. I'll make a long story short. I go to Rav Chaim Kanievsky first. And the uh, first, first question was, what language am I going to be delivering this in? Second thing was, I had to get my watch off. That's one thing Rav Chaim doesn't like watches. Uh, and two, my beard was too short. That was a problem. But once I got past those kind of uh, obstacles and we got to sit down and talk, so Rav Chaim answered like this, Achiezer Chelikimol Zimen Tezayim. That's all he said. What was that? That was the truth of the Achiezer. That was his, that was his uh, story. So I said, what about autonomy? <laughs> no discussion, no further elaboration. Very different experience when I went to Ravosna and when I went to, and this is what I really want to highlight. There's, there's a bad name given to Gdolin that they overstep their bounds. They use metaphysical methods and Ruach HaKodesh to make decisions for people who are living in a real world. Who are living in a pragmatic world where we don't do that. We don't somech on anes. We don't somech on Ruach HaKodesh. I'll get back to Rav Chaim afterwards because he's probably the one who's most associated with this. But they think that's what goes on. I will now share exactly what went on when I went to, I'll start with, Rav Ozen was a very funny experience to begin with. It's, I, I took my sons, I took advantage uh, to meet Ravosin. It's not easy to meet. Rechaim uh, Kanievsky, I don't know if you've ever been there uh, in Bnei Brak, but you know, anyone can just go in and see him. You line up and you get to see Rechaim. Ravosin was preserved, is the word I'll use. His family doesn't let anyone near him. He's upstairs. Now, the case that was with Ravosin was his family, his own family. So, you know, they brought me into the Zedah. And I come in and I... Um, I'm bringing all my kids in because I wanted them to meet Rav Ozna, a chance to meet a double, get a bracha maybe. And uh, one of my kids was in Shalvin at the time. So I say to him, you know, it's a little touchy between the Mizrahi and uh, the more yeshiva shavuot that Brady Brach. I said, when he's going to ask you, the first thing he's going to ask you, what yeshiva, so what yeshiva you're learning in? Don't say Shalvin. Say, I'm learning by Rav Yaakovsen. Just say that. Say, I'm learning by Rav Yaakovsen. That's all I want you to do. Okay, so... That was this, you know, kind of preparation phase. So we come in, and first thing is they throw everyone out. He has me come up alone. He wants to know every detail of the case, which means starting with cardiac physiology. You know, I spent four years in medical school, three years in, in, in residency, then another few years in a fellowship. Ten years learning this, and Raposa wants it, like, in a half hour. So we, not surprisingly brilliant, got the whole thing, right? But So he wants all the physiology, all the pathophysiology. He insisted on all the details of the case. And he wasn't going to make his decision, ultimately, without having full education. He wasn't going to rely on some uh, magical thing. 
Then it got a little funny because when he finally let my kids up, and uh, so first thing he asked my son, like I like I said he was going to say, is, "So what yeshiva you go to?" So my son says, "Shalom." <laughs> <laughs> I'm like, oh, okay. so I see I see Ravos is like looking. What's a Shaladim? You know, like he never heard of it. He whispers to his, his son, his grandson. So I see his, his, his face changed. And he goes, Mizrahi. And then he's looking at me. And then he winks. Oh, we'll give a bracha to Mizrahi too. So it's very nice. He forgot about politics. And I feel like that I had just destroyed my children for life. That they should get that type of chinuch to think that's how a god will act. That he's like, you know, petty that way. So Baruch Hashem, we'll get that turned out okay. I go to Don Siegel. And he goes like this. We're, this we're, we're in his kitchen. He gives me something to drink. So what does he give me? He gives me like a little cup. But got it, right. With, with about this amount of grape juice. So let's go. What's going on? You know, I'm said I know I'm about to learn something. I don't know what it is yet, but I'm thirsty. <laughs> why, he, why is he giving me this? And then I said, "All right, I'll drink it." So as, as I start to drink it, he sa- he goes, "Baruch," and he says the whole bracha Rishona with me. He thought I didn't make brachos. So I guess because he's a doctor, and the doctors make brachos. So he's like, you know, I was I was both. Uh, amazed and insulted at the same time because basically what he was doing is he gave me pachos with the shir because he, he couldn't pull the bracha achrona with me so he makes sure I did the bracha yishona and then I, I wouldn't be chayv in the bracha achrona because I'm getting pachos with shir this is the way I understood it and he still wanted to do to some degree so he gave me the thing so after we got past that I'm saying well this is going to be a long day you know I guess. Um, he also demanded every fact and every detail. So I'm thinking to myself, oh, it's nice that they're doing this. But the truth is, there is something to be gained from doing a full residency and a full fellowship and in terms of, in terms of making these kind of decisions. What's going to happen now? Is it true that, are they going to go outside the bounds of where they're, are they going to fulfill what Ravon Lichtenstein was talking about as a major criteria for true Das Torah? True Das Torah knows your limits. And they didn't disappoint. Because both of them, what they said to me was, what, what would you do? What's your decision? I, now we understand the issue. So how would you, what, what, do you, what would you suggest that this was your child? So I told them what I felt. But, you know, I said, I really think it's a personal decision, but I, I would go for it. My intuition tells me to go for it. So they said, thank you very much. And what did they, what did they end up doing? So... They decided that this was a case where the doctor's opinion really was what counted. Their Das Torah told them this is a medical decision. And what was their achrayas? Their achrayas was to go back to the father and the son and speak to them and explain to the son the significance and convince them they took the achrayas. They didn't need to do this. No one was asking them this. But they felt that that was the thing to do under the circumstances. I'll give you the ending of the story. They talked him into doing it. They did it. Um, I danced at his chasana with him, this boy. And uh, he has three children right now. And uh, I was uh, to a, a nice uh, place at the bris. And um, it was uh, one of the most uh, 
fantastic sort of uh, endings to, to one of these scenarios that could be. But the Das tour there was incredible. Now, I have one minute. This is really my favorite story that's left. So it could be that I, I, I finish in two weeks, but I'll try to do it very, very quickly. Final story involves Rukhain Kenevsky. And um, actually, just to really whet your appetite, this story, I didn't think anyone would believe me when I told this story. So it made it into Arut Sheva and into the J Post, into the, into the news. So there's proof that this actually really happened, this story. So I'm going to leave it with a cliffhanger then. I think we'll have to stop. I don't want to go over. So, and I'll. Is that two minutes? Okay, let's go for it. There was a couple from Malostafna in Eretz who were given some really bad news. The woman was pregnant. She was told that this baby had a horrible defect and you should abort. That's what the doctors in, in Israel said. They called me up. They said, what should we do? I said, all right, let's get another opinion. They said, well, what's your opinion? I said, I don't want my opinion. I'm going to send you, I'm going to take this disc, you know, the, the study. We're going to send it to the two top people in my field. Somebody in Boston, somebody in Philadelphia, who are the best at fetal studies. We're going to get their opinion. So they went and did that, and they kind of agreed with the Israeli. They said, this is a horrible thing. Uh, very, very, they didn't say poor, but they said very, very difficult. What are you going to do? So I said to them, are you, are you open to termination? No way, we're not doing it. Okay, so who then did, I say to them, what? Who, who did you ask if they were open? A couple. I said, are, are you, would you do that? Right? It's a, it's a very open childhood these days. So anyway, they said we would never do that. So I said, well, if you're going to go forward with this and you're going to try to save this baby, you can't do it in Israel. There's only one surgeon in the United States I would trust with this particular thing. He's in Boston, and that's where you got to go. I don't work in Boston, you know, so I'm telling him, don't go to my house today. Go to the best, right? So they say, okay, they, uh, let's ask Reb Chaim. So they go to Reb Chaim, and they say to Reb Chaim the whole story, and he says to them, no surgery, no operation, You're, the baby's going to be fine. So now that's an incredible thing. And this is what makes people very nervous. How can Reb Chaim do that? Come on. Contradicting three expert opinions. It just seems crazy. So I'm begging them not to listen. You know, I, 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 I took it over with my rebellion. I said, I, I know it's Reb Chaim Kanievsky, but I have to go. <laughs> I, can't, I can't listen to that. And you'll see from this article what they did. They didn't really listen to me. They listened to Reb Chaim.